The glory of humanity is the difference, the differentiation, individuality of each person, and the fact that each individual is unique and irreplaceable, which makes each individual precious, precious, precious. I'd like to talk to you this afternoon about two classes of Americans, and it may not be the two classes you think of, but nonetheless, there are two distinct classes in America, and we have to break up. Break up. Break up. Break up. You don't get freedom peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being by any means necessary. Welcome to the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast, a Utah-based program that focuses on ideas, politics, culture, and the current events going on in the world around us, whether locally or globally. I'm your host, David Iglesias. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast. This is your host, David Iglesias, or I'm your host, David Iglesias. And today I am joined with a good friend of mine, Peter Gilbert. He is somebody that I've met while taking on this whole Defend the Guard uh, movement that I've been trying to bring here to Utah. So Peter reached out to me, he got my information and we met up over lunch. And, you know, he he's a member of the, Nas- the Air National Guard and has a really great story and just, um, it was a really good conversation we had. So. Uh, of course, we've got to have an episode where we give the floor to a member of the National Guard if we're going to do some kind of bill that involves the National Guard. So, Peter, how are you doing today, man? Oh, I'm good. Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. Thanks so much for for hitting me up and and expressing interest to come on. Uh, So go ahead and just kind of give your background, tell people about your story, you know, how you got into the National Guard and just everything that, you know, has got you to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I should start off um, and should probably go without saying that whatever I say doesn't represent the National Guard in any way. Um, so just want to make sure that's clear. Um, yeah, I uh, I am I'm really excited to talk to you, David, about um, the Defend the Guard bill specifically. Um, I'm grateful for all the work that you've done on it. And uh, um, that's kind of, like you said, that's how we met. And, um, I really think this bill will do a lot of good. Um, and that's why I am in favor of it. Um, I, I know that you talk to a lot of people about the defend the guard and I, being a member of the guard, I feel like most people don't understand what the national guard actually is. Right. Um, and so I think that's key to this bill is and getting support for this bill. Uh, I'm sure your audience knows what the Defend the Guard bill is. Is it wouldn't, or it wouldn't, it would prevent the Utah National Guard from deploying without an official declaration of war from Congress, like the Constitution says. Um, pretty simple. Um, but what does that actually mean? Because I think I think even my family doesn't really understand what the National Guard is. It's you know, uh, and how is that different from other branches of the military or what um so i wanted to get on here and talk to you about that and just talk to you what the component of the national guard is um and so hopefully people will have a better understanding of that 
um, and why this bill um, is beneficial to not just the guard. Um, this isn't just for the guard, but for our whole country, really. Um, so let's see, I'm not exactly sure how to start, but let's just start with the military in general. There's six branches of the military. There used to be five until a couple years ago, um, which are the Army, the Navy, the Marines, uh, the Marine or the Coast Guard, the Air Force, and the Space Force. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hard to say that Space without Force. laughing, but that's a real thing now. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the six branches, um, and each of those branches have different components. And so there's active duty components, there's reserve components, and there's National Guard components. Um, the Army has active duty components, reserve components, and National Guard. Uh, the Air Force has all three as well. The Navy doesn't have a National Guard. It has Naval Reserves and active duty Navy. Uh, same with mar the Marines. There's reservist Marines. Um, I actually don't know much about the Coast Guard. I've never met anyone in the Coast Guard. I don't think I have uh, either. They're a pretty unique branch. Um, and in the Space Force, they're still kind of trying to figure it out. Uh, there's definitely an active duty aspect of the Space Force. Um, and so those are the components. Now I'll explain what each one does. Active duty, that's what you typically think of when you think of the military, is that these are, this is their full-time job. Um, and so they, you join the army and you're active duty, you get assigned to some base wherever they need you. And that's where you live for whatever. And you do whatever job they want you to do. Um, and you can move around with that. You can make a whole career of that. Like that's your thing you can do. You can retire after 20 years. So a lot of guys do that. Um, and so they are only federally controlled. So all active duty military are under federal orders meaning uh, meaning they're under the control of like not just your not the state government not your mm -hmm. governor not your local it's this is the yeah. like the white house like exactly it doesn't matter what state they're in doesn't matter what country they're in their commander-in-chief is the president mm -hmm. okay um the reserve are a lot like that uh they only have one commander-in-chief but they only meet or they only they have civilian jobs uh for the most part. And so they, what, what uh, is a civilian job? If you could maybe just define that briefly. So I'm in the national guard, my civilian job, I'm an engineer. I'm a okay. civil engineer. Like that's my real job. Like it's a normal, a normal person job, I guess. Yeah. Um, so re reservists are the same. Uh, yeah. they've got a real job during the week or like your normal Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of thing. Uh, then one week in a month, two weeks a year, um, they are training, they're doing their, their military job. Okay. Um, so the guard is the same as that, as the reserves. Uh, but the guard is different because we've got a dual uh, commander in chief, um, not just the president, but also the governor is our commander in chief. It can give us lawful orders that we have to obey. So like here um, in Utah would be governor, uh, governor Cox. Exactly. Um, so So active duty, and so they're all the same. Like if you are an active duty army, if you're a national army national guard, if you're an army reservist, you have the same training. You've got this. You do the same jobs. Mm -hmm. um, same. Uh, 
leadership structure, same ranks, like it's, it's all the same. Uh, so I'm in the Air National Guard, so I am in the Air Force, uh, but I'm in the National Guard component of the Air Force. Gotcha. Um, and I like the National Guard I, because I can stay in Utah. Like I didn't want to like get shipped off to Minot, North Dakota, or uh, there's a lot of bad bases all over the place. <laughs> Um, and there's a lot of just terrible jobs the military that guys in the military have to do. Um, and so National Guard, they had a list of jobs available at the National Guard base. Uh, so I picked the one. And once my aptitude test said I scored enough to do that job, which wasn't a lot to, to accomplish, I became a jet engine mechanic. So I'm a jet engine mechanic in the national guard that's my full or that's my national guard job it's pretty cool yeah it's been kind of fun uh learned I and mean, jet are super cool i like i said i'm a civil engineer like i like mechanical engineering like things and jet engines are are pretty cool so i'm grateful that i got to learn how to fix them yeah and and maybe mention a little bit of uh what's the are you can you mention what aircraft it is that or aircrafts oh, yeah. that you work on yeah um i'm not anything let me be clear. I'm not anything like fancy. I'm not, or we can get into that a little bit later too. I, I'm not the kind of person that um, like people, when people think of the military and they're like, Oh, they're all heroes. They're all like combat vets. Mm -hmm. Most of us are not. Uh, and I am definitely not. And I won't ever pretend to be that. Right. And that, that's uh, kind I am of a mechanic. The, sorry, that's kind of the component of a civilian job, right? It's not combat oriented. Is that right? No, no, no. It's because oh, there okay. are National Guards that are combat National okay. Guard. It's just like my job in the Air Force mm -hmm. is the same as an active duty person's job in the Air Force. Right. We're mechanics and we don't like we deploy to bases that like we don't we don't really leave the base. Okay. Yeah. We're not, we're not in danger or we, we really shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm I not, mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pretending that I. Right. It's not, know. it's not quite the same as like you're going over into active duty. You're not being put in situations where you might exactly. be seeing combat or anything. It's more of a mm -hmm. day job. It's, it's similar to what like a, an engineer, like a regular engineer would do on a daily basis. And you're not in, you're not doing the work in a base overseas in the Middle East where you could potentially. Well, so my, my civilian job has nothing to do with the military. My civilian job is I work for a regional transportation engineering. Oh company. yeah. Sorry. I, I may have used civilian but, in the wrong context. My bad. No, that's okay. I, uh, I just wanted to clear on that. Um, so the Utah air national guard. Well, okay. I want to talk about the kind of the history and then we'll get to like what the Utah National Guard does. Yeah. Okay. Now. Um, and so a lot of people like kind of know this, like kind of peripherally, maybe that the National Guard was the state militias mm -hmm. um, back when, like back in colonial times, um, each state had a militia. They were volunteers that would, you know, drill and train and protect the colony, uh, mostly from native attacks uh, primarily, but a lot of the militias played key roles in uh, the Revolutionary War or uh, 
the seven years war before that. Um, and so those were, that's where like, that's the origin of the National Guard. So like the army wasn't invented until like 1776, uh, but the National Guard is 1637. Okay. Is, is, what, is what they say. Um, so the Utah National Guard, uh, we say that our roots are from the Nauvoo Legion, which if you're from Utah, you might be familiar with what the Nauvoo Legion is. It was the, the militia of the Mormons uh, when they lived in Illinois. Um, and then when they were driven from Illinois, they came out to Utah. Um, a lot of them joined the Mormon Battalion, which uh, was sent to fight the Mexicans in the Mexican War. Um, they, I don't think they actually did. Uh, but when they settled in Utah, they were the Utah militia. Okay. And so from the, they were the territorial militia. They fought, there was the Utah war. A lot of people don't know about that when, uh, Utah kind of fought the federal government, uh, the mountain Meadows massacre, which isn't a great thing for Utah, but that was part of it. Uh, and they saw a lot of action during the Indian wars, uh, was this militia. Um, and then in in 1903, the Militia Act of 1903, that's when the federal government took control of all of the state militias. Okay. And so that was the first step to kind of, uh, what's the word? Um, well, it kind of centralized it almost in a way, right? So from centralized uh, uniform, yeah, uh, like they're all the same. They have the same, um, same structures, the same leadership essentially almost uh, the same mission too when they get called to that that capacity because yeah like you said prior to it was 1903 right so prior to that point that you know it was very much decentralized kind of broken up each state had its own thing and then it sounds like in 1903 that's when it started to become kind of more more akin to what we see now this big exactly. organized central uniform organization mm -hmm. um and then the National Defense Act of 1916 as well. Uh, those two kind of solidified what the National Guard is today, that it's under, it receives a lot of funding from the feds um, and it has the dual missions now that um, the federal government can activate you um, if needed. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's kind of the origin. So it wasn't always this way. Like the governor used to have more control over the militias. Uh, and then over the last hundred years or so, um, we see how the federal government, and even since those two acts, even since 1916, um, just more and more federal control over the National Guard. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a few reasons for that. A lot of it's funding. Um, the states can't fund a lot of the uh, technology and missions that we do today. Um, and then rely on federal funding. Um, but you kind of you kind of see how like they've lost a lot of control. And I think a lot of people don't like realize that. They don't realize that um, this used to be, you know, there's we always hear about like states' rights, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And no one thinks about like the state militia and where that um, that falls into that argument. Right. Um, which I think is interesting. I mean, that's that's kind of a key part, right? I mean, what mm -hmm. is a state's rights if you can't if you can't really defend yourself and you don't have a militia yeah. to uphold and defend those rights when they're challenged? I mean, and you make a really good point in that the funding, it's really interesting the dynamic that the federal funding plays because 
um, and we'll get into this maybe later on with when we talk about the bill, but it definitely influences the the policies and just the way that this a state moves. So like when I when I did my research, a lot of the I can't remember if this was a 2018, 2019 uh, report done by oh what's the it's it's I think a part of the University of Utah. I mean they're a research wing for the federal government essentially. So mm -hmm. a lot of the DOD, the Department of Defense grants, a lot of those go straight into the federal, uh, the, the National Guard, meaning that a lot of the jobs and money and, you know, income that's coming to Utah that's helping the economy grow is directly linked to, to the National Guard, which it's like you said, it really pulls away from the, the state's rights aspect of it. And mm -hmm. it makes you very much more dependent on the federal government. Yeah, yeah. So if like you lean that way politically where you're like, maybe we shouldn't lean or depend that much on the federal government, maybe look into this more. Mm -hmm. That's just a, a plug for like, we can talk about this more and I'm sure we will. There are so many, like whatever your political persuasion is, mm -hmm. you should get behind defend the guard. 100%. Like there is something about it that will appeal to, I think just about anyone, unless you're just a hardcore, like, America needs to be in war with every single country, mm -hmm. then, then you should be behind defend the guard. <laughs> yeah. I uh, but we can, we can talk about that more. I yeah. Um, I, so let's see. Right. In, so, in, in 1946 is when the air national guard was formed. Okay. Um, and so that's where they split. So there's an army national guard and air national guard. In Utah, these might be a little bit old numbers this is from a few years ago, but there's about 5,000 Utah Army National Guard members and yeah. about 2,000 Air National Guard members. Um, and all around the state, you'll see like National Guard armories. Mm -hmm. um, and those are all Army National Guard armories. Um, and so if you're an Army Guard member, you can drill, you can do your one week in a month at that armory in your community. Um, all the Air National Guard members in the state have to go to the one Air National Guard base in, uh, it's just east of the International Airport in Salt Lake. Okay, dang. So that's, so that's if that's you live down south. Yeah, yeah, we had a guy in my shop that came from Vegas, or not Vegas, uh, came from St. George uh, every month. That bad. is, a, yeah, that's brutal. But, but um, yeah, that's, that's how it is. Um, so most, most National Guard members are Army. Uh, and again, me being an heir, I can only talk about what my experience is. And so I, I don't have a lot of insight on what the Army National Guard does. Um, but I know what you know, my unit does and, and, and the role that we play. Um, I want to mention this as well. In the 80s, there was a push by some Democratic governors to take back some control of the National Guard. Uh, it's a pretty interesting case. Um, they, um, one of them was, I think it's governor of Massachusetts, uh, Dukakis. Okay. Um, name people probably recognize. They were, they claimed that they were worried that um, National Guard training missions to Central American countries would antagonize some Central American countries and could lead us to war, um, which if you know anything about the Reagan administration, um, 
we're already antagonizing Central American countries, so it's not completely out of the realm of um, possibility. And so they objected to sending their guard units on training missions down there. They were just training missions, not combat. Um, and it was ruled that they did not have the power to prevent them from training, that the governors had no authority to stop them from training. Right, and this is from uh, the, the Supreme ruling, Court. Um, but they were very specific to say training. And uh, is it, it's, and my understanding is it's limited time, right? It's like two weeks. Is that correct? Or is there no limit on the, the timing? I, I don't know a limit. I haven't heard yeah. a limit. I could be wrong. Um, I, I'm remembering, I should know this because Dan McKnight was just on and we talked about this and I, I should know yeah. that right off the top of my head, but unfortunately I've forgotten that detail. But the key is training is allowed. Mm -hmm. Training is allowed. Um, but I, and I think the key is it's interesting that they specifically said they didn't say no you cannot stop sending guard guys it's you can't send them on training missions uh so it's never been brought up that uh you can't send them to war right uh, and i guess maybe let me reiterate because i may have cut the train of thought for the listeners mm -hmm. we're talking about if the president of the united states sends them to training the governor of that state is not allowed to stop the training Right. But you're now you're talking about the question of what if the what if the president of the United States sends them to war and the governor says no, that's the part that right. the, the Supreme Court didn't get into. Right. 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 And that's what we in with defend the guard. That's what we want addressed. Um, and I think um, and hopefully we can make it more clear uh, that the Constitution is pretty clear about whether or not military can go to war under the president's orders. Mm -hmm. um it's clear that they cannot right um okay so that's kind of just the history of that and then the utah national guard um my job specifically um the utah Na air national guard our biggest unit is an aerial refueling wing um and so we fly the kc-135 tankers um and they just refuel every plane in the sky uh, just flying gas stations. So these are these are huge planes, I'm imagining. Yeah, they're they're big. They're I mean if they're flying all the the the, the gas around to refuel the, the planes, mm -hmm. in my mind I'm thinking it's gotta be massive. It's pretty big. It's uh about a seven thirty seven equivalent okay. for passenger jet. Um holds about two hundred thousand pounds of fuel. That's what we measure fuel in as pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this aircraft was designed in the fifties, our old or our newest jet was built in 1964. Man. Um, so they're pretty fun to maintain and, uh, keep in the air, um, and kind of nerve wracking to fly on cause they're old and I know the guy's working on them. So, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's it. That's what we do. Um, nothing. It's not, it's not like secret. It's not like anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so my deployments are. I, um, I've only ever been deployed to Qatar, um, which if ever I tell any active duty person that I'm deploying to Qatar, they kind of laugh and that's not a real deployment, which I get because the base there has a Dairy Queen and a pool. So <laughs> okay. I get that. Um, but if you're working, you know, six days a week, 14 hour days, it's kind of a deployment. Yeah. It's hot. It sucks. 
Uh, but those are my deployments. Uh, I've been over there three times. Um, another thing, another difference between the Air National Guard and the Army National Guard is typically Army deployments are long, um, like a year. Um, but they only have to go like every five years or so. Okay. Um, we deploy for two to three months at a time. And uh, there was a time there that I was going every year. Uh, so, um, so frequent, but short and it's not so bad. I'd always volunteer to go in the summer because I was in college. Um, so I didn't want to miss school. So I'd volunteer for the summer deployments, which was really bad in Qatar, but um, yeah, that sounds awful, but I didn't miss school and it was fine. And I mean, it was a fun summer job, really. I mean, just go over there and fix planes and come home with money. Gotcha. Anyway. Yeah. And so um, I guess maybe before we start getting into some of the, because we should, we definitely, I think the next thing we, we can cover is kind of about the, well, so what, what I want to do is, first of all, the, the, one of the big differences between the guard and the army you know, the guard is usually thought of when I when I had heard of the guard, you know, not that I had a very good understanding, but I was always led to believe that the National Guard was about responding to things within the borders of our country. I never imagined National Guard being deployed overseas. I was always thinking, oh, they're the ones that go respond to nat uh, natural disasters. They're the ones that go and, you know, deal with civil unrest. They go uh, you know, anything like that, that's not like a war and just outright conflict with terrorists or something. However, that's not the case. That's, we've seen a very different, a lot of people I think would be surprised at the role that a lot of the National Guard has been used in. So maybe you can help highlight yeah. what should the National Guard, I mean, we, we've already said what it should be, but what, what more has it actually been used for? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and you're right. Um, and I, I kind of skip over that um, state responsibility and natural disaster stuff. Mm -hmm. um, no one I know in the Air National Guard. Well, that's not true. Um, they typically don't call the Air National Guard to help with national na natural disasters. Like when I joined the National Guard, I was like, okay, I'm going to help my community. That, and that still means a lot to me. Like I want to help my community. Right. Um, and they'll call the army guard out for things um, during the riots uh, last year um, or two years ago now, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. The National Guard called out a little bit for that. Um, so there's still some. Um, and I would like, I'd love opportunities to help people. Um, and I, I haven't seen them really in my, in my unit. I know that happens, but um, mm -hmm. So I like, I don't know if Dan, Dan McKnight shared this um, on that episode, but I've heard him say this story before of he was in the Idaho National Guard, I think, and was called to go down to Hurricane Katrina to help mm -hmm. um, because the uh, Louisiana National Guard was deployed to uh, Afghanistan. Um, and I think that should blow everyone's mind. That kind of blows my mind that why, why, why is that? 
um, when we could be helping out at home, they're sent overseas. Yeah, Louisiana um, Guard is not there to mm-hmm. respond to their own problems. They have to pull from Utah. Yeah, and so or, sorry, Idaho, I guess in that case. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I think that's just you know that's one story, but I'm sure there's so many stories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my deployments, I we send we don't go like as a whole unit they send like one or two guys from a shop. Okay. So I'm like maybe the only engine mechanic going from Utah. And so I go and I show up in Qatar and I go to work and there's guys, people from all over the country. There's a couple guys from a couple active duty guys or a couple reservist guys. There's a bunch of guard guys. Uh, and you're just thrown together and you just kind of make it work. And that's, Figure it out. that's, that's tinker maintenance. Um, and I know that's that's not the case. That's not how every unit deploys. A lot of units deploy together, um, but the it's all augmentation of active duty. Um, that without the National Guard, the active duty guys would get burned. Like, like it's so, exhausting, right? The amount of work that they would have mm-hmm. to do without the support of the National Guard. It's it's not that like one or the other is more important, or it's just it's a system that helps keep from burnout and from overworking yep. them. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're, we're an in, in integral part of, of America's warfighting capabilities that uh, we have this opportunity for, you know, a national guard units coming in. So this active duty army unit can go home um, and rotate. And- right. And you could even make maybe, and I, I don't want to get into a whole thing of this, but maybe we could, it seems to me that, you know, part of the reason why the US was able to expand on their wars like we were in Afghanistan and we were in Iraq and we were in you know in these conflicts and part of the reason from what I've gathered is that they were able to essentially send the guard troops to kind of hold down Iraq or hold down Afghanistan while they sent their other those troops that were there to another part and so it kind of allows you know it's like you're saying the idea is it's helping with like avoid burnout but there's also the the potential that it allows them the U.S. government to expand the amount of wars that they're doing and say, "Hey, we're going to set our guard here, and then we'll send our active duty over there." Is that does that seem like a fair analysis? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know the real logistics of um, what's exactly happening right. that like specifically, but absolutely, like it's just more we're we're all trained the same. Like I might only do my job one week in a month, mm-hmm. but. Um, I can go over there and work as a team. Mm-hmm. Like, like I outrank like the active, active duty kid that, you know, does it every single day. Right. Like, he knows the job way better than I do, but without me being there, like it, it helps. Right. And it's, and it's Dan, I think Dan McKnight made this point. It's not to say that like you guys are so much better than it's just, it, it's a lot of people might think that national guard troops are like, Oh, they kind of get the stigma of like, you know, you're just the weekend warriors. You're not really uh-huh. cut out for it when it's like, no, you guys really do. You know, you, you bust your asses and you are mm-hmm. ready to go in just as much as these guys are. Like, yeah, definitely the stigma of the national guard is not as good as the active duty, but I have met some shitty active duty kids that like the laziest people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm here working. You're not working. I'm, I'm guard, but I'm better 
out here yeah. than you are. <laughs> like they like told me there's like, I have to stay in the military because I could not make it in a civilian job. So, I don't think you could. I think you need <laughs> to stay in this, in this unit. But, and I know that's not true of, that's a, you know, that's not true of most military members, right. but. But like, it happens. You can coast in the military pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not to toot guards horn, but. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, guard is there. They're, mm, uh, we're, we're, we're there. Um, and, and we couldn't have endless wars without using the national guard. Right. And I think that that acts as a good segue into the next part where um, we can go over why this bill matters, because it seems, you know, I've talked about it. I've had Dan on and people who know me personally and I've talked to, I obviously I don't shut up about this stuff. This is what I'm always working on is helping people understand that the National Guard has been, I mean, the whole military, I would say, has been largely abused. But the National Guard is a significant part in it, as we just outlined. They they help make things possible. But the unique part, and this is why we start, I think, you know, you started out talking about Utah's or the state's component where it's they have control, the governor has control over the guard. So it seems that we have been in constant wars since I think before both you and I have were even born. World War II was the last officially declared war, but we've been at war since, I mean, you know, after the after World War II, it's not like these wars stopped and it's not like US soldiers stopped coming home in flag draped coffins. The difference though is that as the Congress has not declared war and this is meant to, to help, you know, address that. Uh, maybe explain from your perspective, you know, why is this, why is this so important to you as someone that actually is involved in, you know, being in the guard? Yeah. Um, you, you said something that I kind of want to address that the, you said the National Guard was abused, like active duty was abused. And I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, because honestly, for the most part, 99% of those in the military like endless wars. Yeah, so um, I guess I mean, uh, like abuse the the role of them. Not, not yeah, 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 yeah. And and that like that that's that's a good distinction. But I I want to address this that like wars are good for us. They're money for yeah. us. Um, oh yeah. That doesn't mean that it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that we should turn a blind eye to the negative consequences of our endless wars, mm-hmm. um, which there are so many. Um, I think, I think personally, and this is opinion, but like all the problems that we see today, you know, the, the culture wars, um, the massive, you know, federal um, expansion over everything, even inflation, um, yeah. All of this is because of our endless wars started 20 years ago, that they've got to print more money to pay for these wars. Uh, the federal government's got to spy on everyone because we're at war constantly. Um, and it just drives up this, this rhetoric. And, and so I think, I think we got to get to the bottom of this. Um, I like the defend the guard bill isn't a silver bullet for this. Um, right. It's one thing that 
because what could happen is this say this bill gets passed say this bill gets passed across the country and you know all congress has to do is declare war and then we're right back at it again mm-hmm. um and personally i'm just counting on washington gridlock to keep that from happening but sometimes these wars just um they're so unanimous in like well we have to go to war like they they attacked us there is no like we can't have a discussion about this mm-hmm. um if you're we can't like think of the best strategy to like prevent this from happening again we just have to go to war and you saw it in 2001 uh you saw it in 2002 um that congress just gets in line behind the narrative and um don't really want to get into ukraine today but like that's another one where it is unanimous opinion on this issue and that's scary yeah um if we're really a a democratic you know system where like we have a congress to deliberate and debate ideas and they're not doing that Mm -hmm. like we're not going to get the best result or a good result and so especially Well, and especially because these people that are voting on these wars, well, they're supposed to, but they're the ones that are signing off and giving approval uh, uh, informally. It's not like, maybe with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, it's not like most of these people actually are part of, you know, it's not like they have skin in the game. They're not the ones that have loved ones coming home in the coffins. They're not the ones risking their lives on the line. In fact, a lot of them end up making money one way or the other off of it. And it's disgusting because they, it, there's no, like when you look at the cost benefit analysis or the, the risk versus reward, for them, there's like zero risk. In oh. fact, politically speaking, there's more, a lot of times there's more incentive to start the war so you can get reelected and not look like a, you know, a coward. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if it were up to you, you know, Peter, Pete, what would you say if someone said, hey, we got to go over to Ukraine and they look at you and say, yeah, we should send the National Guard and we should send our troops over to Ukraine. What would you tell them? No. <laughs> Why? Why? Give me a good reason and let's talk about it. Right. Um, like, I, I think it's important to say that supporters of this bill aren't anti-war. My personal feelings are uh, leaning more and more towards no war is justified mm-hmm. um that's a hard thing to say especially um when you look at like some terrible atrocities in history yeah uh, but i i think the more we see it and i think that's a good thing about the ukraine stuff going on right now is it is front page news that people are like oh this is horrible we shouldn't do this mm-hmm. um unfortunately it's kind of this is how Russians wage war and Russians wage war horribly, but America would never wage a war that terrible, which is bullshit. <laughs> um, right. Because exactly. the most brutal Putin's war crimes and they are war crimes. Like he is a terrible, terrible person. And we, I don't know anyone that is in favor of Russia winning. this Right. Um, or continuing to kill innocent people. Like that's terrible. And we should find, diplomatic ways to solve it because they are available Mm -hmm. um but 
Putin doesn't hold a candle to Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, or George Bush. Like, does not. As far as killing innocent people, Yeah, there's no question that all four of them have way more blood on their hands. That we got attacked on 9-11, 3,000 Americans died, tragedy. Um, and we killed a million people in response, a million innocent people that did not attack us. There's no justice there. Yeah. So, like, that's we're off topic. We're on a tangent, but well, it's related. Like, it's definitely related. Like, it's just gross that we can't like talk about what we're actually doing. Um, and hopefully, this bill helps that conversation mm-hmm. happen a little bit more. I'm not honestly. I'm not too optimistic. It will. I just think it's a step in the right direction and hope that it can do something it's certainly an uphill battle for sure and i think the more you know people the more voices like yours we get out there versus you know me i'm just an activist my only my only connection to the military is my my fantastic grandfather you know he was drafted uh to go to you know korea and that's that's not even (laughs) related to what we're seeing today so I, you know, I, there could be a, a thousand me's saying, hey, we got to do this. But even 50 of you, you know, 50 veterans, guardsmen, active duty, people who actually have skin in the game, who've seen, um, I have a really good friend that I've reconnected with. Me and her, we, we talk fairly often about her experience because she's also in the guard. And she's just expressed, you know, it, it's funny because we've both come to a lot of the same insights as far as you know government corruption government you know poor the poor ability of of theirs to even handle anything but i got through it through more of like a philosophical ideological approach and then you know i've seen over time those things come to fruition whereas she's you know and i i'm sure you have and this would be a great thing to let you expound on you've seen firsthand how you know botch some of the and it doesn't even have to be like on a massive scale of slaughtering people i mean that is the worst case scenario but even like the smaller details of day-to-day interactions and how they you know carry out simple um operations it's it's not efficient a lot of times and there's a lot of shady stuff or just poor management is that is do you feel like that is the experience you've had oh yeah um i don't think you can come away from being in the military without leaning at least a little bit more libertarian (laughs) um because you just realize how incompetent like a bureaucracy it is um and i really struggle with this because i'm not trying to the military does some good things there are some humanitarian missions that are great um i but So I, I really love my shop. I love all the guys in my shop. Uh, we all get along great. We hang out, you know, outside of the military. Um, I think my unit is good. I like my commander. Um, but I think you get beyond that. And like when I go to Qatar, I have a different commander who's not incentivized to um, be efficient or effective or anything like that. Uh, and I've got lots of stories about like, a lot of shady stuff um but um this and this isn't just 
this isn't even my perspective as a military member. I think all of America saw um, Afghanistan last August. Um, and I am 100% of supporting or 100% supportive of ending America's occupation and involvement in Afghanistan. Um, there's no question. Like, I don't know how you can look at that and say, okay, we spent 20 years here. We spent trillions of dollars here that clearly didn't go to setting up a government, even if that was morally the right thing to do, mm-hmm. which that government was terribly corrupt and shouldn't have been propped up anyway. Yeah. But where did that money go? Like, when I talk to people about this, like, I, I love history. Like, I, I'm always reading history. I'm always listening to history podcasts. That's my thing. Um, and so when I talk to people about this, I kind of get the feeling that they think I'm a conspiracy guy. Um, and I'm not, like, I just like history. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm learning the history of all these things. And it's, um, I think people just aren't interested in the history of it. And so when I tell them, like, hey, like, for 20 years, like, top people, like, whistleblowers were saying, this is corrupt. This is, a, you know, a paper army. This is, like, what we're doing here isn't effective. It's not working. Um, like, that's not conspiracy. That's all real stuff, like, reported on. And, it's literally and documented. Really yeah. Um, so... Like when Afghanistan, like when that happened, anyone that had followed that at all knew that the Taliban were going to take over. Like by September 2021, the Taliban would be in charge of Afghanistan. Everyone knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, you could have had a withdrawal better. And I'm not, you know, quarterbacking this, but I, I think it's pretty clear to most people, like it could have gone better. Right. Um, and the worst part, like mistakes happen, terrible mistakes happen. Okay. But accountability needs to happen. And has there been any accountability? Absolutely not. If anything, I'm sure in promotions. Right. Um, they drone strike the family just to make it seem better. Right. On the way um, out. Like what a, what a class, like I could not think of a more perfect way to sum up just what that whole debacle was like you, you on your way out you drone strike a family and there wasn't i think the father was like an ally he had been uh, yeah. someone that was helping the government the u.s government over there it's unbelievable it it it's mind-blowing and it's just so clear that um i don't know how to hold those people accountable like that is i am not optimistic that we ever will like i think that is is just how that is um so my hope with defend the guard is that it will prevent that situation from happening again that we can't get justice for you know that situation for the poor people in afghanistan now who are starving to death Mm. um we can't get justice for them and that's so awful um but maybe we can stop doing it in the future yeah the least we could do is stop making their life worse by mm-hmm. holding these people so, accountable that kind of going back i so i had this experience um that kind of like changed my perspective um i i was kind of older when i enlisted i was 22 
And uh, a lot of guys join when they're 17, 18. And like, those are the guys that like the military is like them. Like that's their personality, mm-hmm. which I don't want that, but I'm sure it is a little bit. Um, so I went through basic and all that. And there was the rah-rah America stuff, which, you know, it's, that's expected good and kind of I was like all right like I'm doing I'm doing what I'm doing like I'm here to serve um but it's also a job and I would like to pay for school um and so that was kind of a lot of the motivation um and like I said I've always liked history and so I've known about like America's support for dictators in the world going back decades Mm -hmm. um and so I know that we're not always the good guys that we portray ourselves to be, but I, at least, you know, at least there's more good than harm is, was my perspective. Right. Um, and so I, I did, so that was 10 years ago is when I enlisted. Um, I, I had a few trips to the Middle East, uh, did some training stuff in Germany. Uh, I've been to Guam a few times. Um, like that's where I've been. And the Qatar stuff, I knew that we were like actively supporting the wars and stuff, but it was like 2015, 2016. Uh, so we're fighting ISIS. Right. And so that's a pretty clear, like I'm doing the right thing. Right. Um, so I thought, um, 2018, uh, apparently still fighting ISIS, even though Trump squashed them, but, um, like, so I'm over there and I had this experience that kind of changed a lot of my perspective and made me like really reflect on, on these things and like really investigate what had been going on, especially the last 20 years. Um, so I'm a mechanic, um, we get the planes ready to take off. Um, and so we'd go out to the planes, uh, prep them for flight. Then the pilots would come out and take over. Um, and they'd kind of, sometimes they'd give us a briefing. They're like, okay, here, we're going to go like today. We're going to fly eight hours up to Iraq and we're going to refuel some A-10s and, uh, and then we're going to come back and fly home, uh, or flying out to Afghanistan today, or we're flying to Syria, um, that kind of stuff, which is always kind of cool. Like you're 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 there you're part of it mm-hmm. as a as a mechanic as a lowly mechanic and uh one day uh we got this plane ready and some pilots came out and uh and we we would refuel that that base was the largest refueling base in the middle east um when i was there in 2015 and 16 it was so busy we had like 70 jets we were taking care of holy crap uh like there were so many jets they didn't have enough space for them on the ground they'd have to like launch one to let, let one land. It was nuts. Uh, but 2018, uh, some pilots were there and they, uh, they were kind of talking to us there again, it was this briefing. So we refuel every American plane and allied plane. Right. Um, and so they, they're like, okay, hey, we're going to fly down to Yemen today and uh, we're going to refuel some Saudi jets. Uh oh. And one of the guys, uh, there's three member crew. One of them was like, just hope they don't uh, bomb a hospital again. Oh my God. And like, kind of said it like as a, 
like an uncomfortable joke and they're like huh yeah and i was like i mean i knew i knew there was stuff going on in yemen i didn't know the full extent of what was going on there but i'm like what do you what do you mean like yeah i didn't say this i you know but like i'm in my head i'm like what what what's going on we're we're helping someone bomb hospitals what why um and then you start digging into why and uh and really like did that happen and it did happen um what else are we bombing oh school buses schools children um why are we blockading this country why are we targeting uh civilian infrastructure and water treatment plants why are we doing this is this how how am i helping my country by helping with that and like even like a small part, like I'm just the engine mechanic on this plane that refuels the other plane that mm-hmm. does this. But like, how can I like be a part of this? You know, I signed up to defend my country, but this is not defending my country. Um, like if I was one of those people, I would, you know, take up arms against America too. Like, I don't know how you can't see that, that the blowback is a real thing. And um, so that was kind of my experience where I'm like, okay, what, and I'd known that we hadn't declared war since 1942, but, um, you kind of blow that off. You're like, well, I'm sure it's fine. Like, I'm sure the big lawyers, they know, they know what's happening that, um, maybe it's not Congress didn't declare war, but I'm sure it's fine. And you look into it and there's no constitutional authority for any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we swore, we, we take an oath of enlistment, right? We swear to defend the Constitution. Um, and we swear to defend it with our lives, right? Um, and maybe I wasn't like all gung-ho with the America thing, but like I did take that oath and it is, does mean something. Um, and so I don't know how you can take that oath, which, you know, everyone takes that oath. All politicians take that oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, militaries are the only ones that take it with their life on the line. Yeah. And like, this sounds harsh, but I 100% believe this. And I, I don't know if veterans would get offended if I say this, but all of us that have deployed since 1945 have broken that oath. There is no question about that. Um, and I, even if we were making America safer, which is highly debatable, um, then we should like follow the constitution that we swore to protect. Um, so that's, that's kind of why it means a lot to me, um, that, like for I don't know I don't know where I'm going with that well no I think that I that that's a really wow <laughs> that's a pretty powerful point to make in that because I was going to ask you you know if you feel like that oath is being held and 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 you know really lived up to and you you clearly you know expressed your feeling that no, whether, even whether, you know, whether or not it's the intentions of the soldiers, just the mere engaging in, because the U.S. itself, the U.S. government itself, the politicians, 
there's no doubt that they're violating that oath and they're dragging mm -hmm. everybody else along that swore, especially those, like you said, you guys are the ones that literally put your life to that oath. And so what does it mean? Like how many people actually sit back and think about what does that oath say? What, what are you swearing an oath to? And then when you reflect over, like you shared your experience of, you know, man, I really hope that the Saudis aren't going to bomb a hospital today. And you're like, wait a second. I saw, I thought I was swearing an oath to the constitution and to protect this country and, you know, the freedoms that are, you come with it, not going and bombing innocent civilian infrastructure and then destroying, you know, countless lives. It's, it definitely is a heavy thing to consider and to think about, but I, I you know, and I can't say anything because I've not, like, I haven't taken up the oath. Who am I to, but, but it makes sense to me, the point you're making. And, and I don't think you're the only one who feels that way. I would, I would, I would guess that there's a lot of other veterans and a lot of people even currently serving who are recognizing that. And to me, I think you could make the case then that, you know, what we're doing with defend the guard, you know, you're simply trying to uphold your oath. You know, you realize yeah. that there's some major issues going on in that, this is a way to address that. I don't know. What do you think about that point? No, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I think that, okay. So the military is under um, a special set of laws, I guess, uh, the uniform code of military justice. Um, and it's specific. It lays out, you know, the, um, the, the rules of being in the military and the punishments uh, for breaking those rules um we're obligated to obey lawful orders um and um that obligation to obey lawful orders comes with an obligation to disobey unlawful orders um and that sounds great um i was reading a little bit more about um like instances where people have like said, Hey, I don't think this is a lawful order. Um, and it can't be something like you've got to go take that, you know, hill over there. That's a lawful order. Like you might disagree with it, like tactically or personally, but like that's legally what the military can make you do. Mm -hmm. Um, but like going to war is unlawful unless the constitution, unless Congress has declared war. Um, and so we have an obligation to disobey that. In 2002 and 2003, there were a few, um, there were a couple army cases uh, where soldiers would say, like, uh, this is illegal, um, invading Iraq is not, um, and the courts ruled that it was ambiguous, and, uh, and that they, and because it was ambiguous, like, they didn't have any standing. Um, and I don't know. I don't know how it is ambiguous. Like, what is it? Uh, Article one, section eight. Mm -hmm. Like, it's right there. It's one sentence. Congress has the power to declare war. And you look at like, like the War Powers Act in 1973 was um, kind of an attempt to bring back. Um, like since World War II, the powers of the president to declare war had really just escalated. Um, and 
you know, Truman really did it first when he was, he was like, well, we're just, we're, it's a military action in Korea. Uh, it's not a war. Um, and then LBJ in Vietnam, like it just exploded. And so 1973 Congress is like, maybe we should take back some of our, our powers. Um, and it was kind of a, when I read it, I'm like, it seems like this is like a compromise. It was kind of like, hey, uh, Mr. President, you can do, you can do what you want, but you just got to tell us after you did it. Um, and so we can approve it. Um, was kind of like the Band-Aid. And Nixon vetoed it. Um, it they overrid the veto. So like the War Powers Act is, is valid or it's, it's there. I think it's unconstitutional, but right. um, I don't like Congress can't, override the constitution with a bill like the war powers act and congress doesn't have the power to delegate the war powers to the president right like the constitution says they can't do that um anyway so the war powers resolution has been there since 1973 and it's even that is ignored like that was the compromise and they just keep doing whatever they want right um i think I had some notes on it that I thought was interesting. Um, I wanted to say this is the title of, in the in the War Powers Resolution. Um, it says the purpose of this act is to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution of the United States and ensure that the collective judgment of both Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of the armed forces of the United States in hostilities. Like the collective judgment of both Congress and the President. That's not in the Constitution. Right. Like, that's that's what war is. Like, everyone knows what war is, I think. Um, so I don't know how you can justify that this is okay. Um, I, think, I think one of the best examples of ignoring the War Powers Act was when Clinton bombed Yugoslavia. Um, like, Congress was, like, upset. And then didn't do anything. So, well, and like that just sets up the precedent for the next 20 years of endless wars. It's like, well, Congress is upset, but they're not going to do anything. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to, like, maybe this way into the weeds, but the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. Oh, no, that's a significant one. Please, please <laughs> expound on that because that's presently the one that is used to justify every single conflict at this point, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that, it, um, so that one and the 2002 authorization. So the 2001 was, was right after 9-11, uh, and it authorized uh, the president to use force against those that attacked us. Um, it, <laughs> I still, like, AUM, AUMFs aren't constitutional. Like you can't authorize something, someone to do something if the constitution says that they can't do it. So anyway, yeah. So that that AUMF has been used in almost every conflict since then. Is oh, we're fighting the guys that attacked us. Right. It's funny because you could go into the details and you know who really attacked us. Was it the not, Iraqis? <laughs> not like poor Pashtun farmers, and nope. like they had nothing to do with Arab uh like international terrorism right in fact i think there's just barely a uh 
they declassified some documents that revealed just recently in this last year, I believe, even last few months, that there's uh, more connections to the to some Saudi Arabian spies or something like that. Like the Saudis, our allies, the Saudis, who you know, as you mentioned, are the ones bombing the hospitals in Yemen. It's yeah. actually some mem. It was some Saudis that were involved and Egyptians and not Iraqis, not not your not the Afghanistan people that we've just spent the last 20 years destroying. They're not the ones that attacked us, but yeah. the AUMF is giving us the authorization to go and carry out these, you know, disastrous conflicts. And people always ignore Africa. Oh, yeah. Um, everyone's like, oh, Trump, like, this is one of my biggest, like, pet peeves with, like, people defending Trump. And like, oh, he was a, he was such a peaceful president. He didn't get us into any new war. But you look at Africa and he, like, not only did he increase um, drone strikes and bombings all over the Middle East, but he, like, greatly increased America's involvement in all over Africa, using the 2001 AUMF as, as justification. Wow. I just read an article that um, some of the forces that we were training to fight the people we were fighting in Africa are now, like, staging coups and like overthrowing governments Surprise. in africa so like it's just it's never ending so now we have a new reason um, to be there right it's forever and we, and we can't leave yeah um it doesn't it doesn't make us safer um the 2002 aumf was uh the authorization to go to iraq which i say this to people i'm like you know that the iraq war was based on lies right like that it's not even like controversial. What? But people don't know. Yeah, people exactly. That, like people think that it was because of nine eleven, or I it. It's not a conspiracy. This is real. Like I don't know that that blows my mind. Um, they're trying to repeal the two thousand two AUMF. Um, the House passed a bill that would repeal it and repeal the nineteen ninety one AUMF. Uh, which is long overdue for being revealed. Right. Um, it's stuck in the Senate. So. Oh. So that's where we're at year. with that. Uh -huh. Wow. Okay. No, it was. I think it was last year the House passed okay. it, but it's it's been stuck in the Senate. Of course. Um, but that's not even like the AUMFs are one thing. Um, Obama's war in Libya didn't even use an AUMF as a justification. It was a UN no-fly zone resolution okay which last i checked the constitution doesn't get overridden by the u.n <laughs> oh my god um, so we destroyed libya um and congress didn't even care um so i don't know it's it's just one thing after the other of blatant disregard for what the actual role for our military is it's taking advantage of opportunities to make a huge profit because you know all the people involved are the weapons manufacturers the politicians who you know there's some kind of political or financial thing to be gained out of it and it sacrifices the lives of people who you know signed up you know i would imagine most of them signed up not thinking they're going to go overseas and you know be <laughs> training the next group of guys to stage a coup or going over and guarding the poppy fields or the opium fields in Afghanistan or going and feeling the planes that are dropping bombs on civilians. Like 
they're abusing these powers and they're abusing the response, like the role of the military. And they're, it's, like you said, there's zero accountability. I think, and you expressed earlier a little bit of, of uh, pessimism. And, and I, I think there's good reason for what you make, the point you make on, you know, let's say we do pass the bill. Well, they can still authorize, they can still declare the wars and they can still do it. But at least now people will get to say, hey, look, did you know Mitt Romney signed off on going to war in freaking Ukraine yeah. or going in yeah. your brother, your sister, your daughter, your he's they are dead because, you know, this senator and this representative in Congress wanted to, you know, they said it was the right thing to do. And now you can know exactly who the criminals are and who at the very I mean, they, it's so stupid because, you know, voting them out is like, wow, you start a war, you slaughter millions of people. Uh, what happens? You get voted out of office. But I mean, right. at, le at least it's somewhat of a, a thing of accountability. Yeah. It brings attention. Yeah. It, it seems so like little, but it, at least it's a step, right? At least it's something, you know, you're making the effort to uphold your oath, which is a huge deal. Um, you know, you're trying to fulfill the promise and the thing that you swore to protect. And we're trying to ultimately, you know, not put our country in greater danger, which again is the whole role that the, you know, the armed forces plays to keep, keep us safe, keep the rest of us here at home in, you know, a, a place of peace where we don't have to worry about this. But I think the more that people become aware that it's, it's the literal opposite. You mentioned blowback, exactly, you know, blowback and all of the, the consequences of intervening with these other countries and, you know, just destroying the, the livelihoods of so many people, it doesn't do any of us any good. And so, I don't know. I, I feel like you just go on a rant like for this on this whole thing forever, but yeah, um, we should probably wrap up. I don't know. I want to let you finish up any, any things you feel like you need to cover before we wrap up, go ahead, you know, whatever points you also want to throw yeah. into here. Yeah. I, I keep talking on this forever, but um, I want to talk about, so in Utah specifically, hopefully anyone that hears this or is listening, following you um, and is, wondering about defend the guard um i want to talk about kind of what we're looking at with the utah legislature yeah um the legislature is pretty um i entered up in the legislature i know you've worked up there um and so like we kind of have an idea of how it goes um one of my favorite things about working up there was how accessible uh our state legislators are i actually really like Utah's legislative system. Um, I like that it's part-time legislators uh, that go home for most of the year. They only meet for two months out of the year. Um, and they, I, I think most of them, the ones that I've worked with, like really do work hard on making bills that, um, that work for people. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are hesitant to work on ideas that are outside of their wheelhouse, um, which makes sense. They're, citizen legislators so they have real jobs and like they have an expertise that they bring to the legislator and most of them the national guard is not part of it right um and so if there's an issue with the national guard uh there are two members of the house uh that have served in the national guard um, and so it's kind of our impression that those are the those are the kind of the make or break legislators that um if they say no on this bill, 
that um, the rest of the House will follow and the Senate will follow. Um, and so um, one uh, representative Peterson, uh, I think he's from Orem, he uh, retired as a uh, colonel in the Guard. Um, so high ranking, colonel, colonel's a pretty big deal. Uh, but he's, I think he's, I think he's the majority whip and now he's in, in house leadership. Um, and so he's, he's a good guy. Everyone I've only met him once personally, but like everyone I talked to knows that he's, he's a good guy, like solid, uh, um, puts a lot of thought into things. Um, and then, um, representative Jeff Burton, who is, uh, fairly new. Um, he retired from the national guard as a brigadier general. Um, so he was the, he was the adjutant general for the state of Utah. He was the top national guard, army national guard. The tag is always, a uh, was army, always an army guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, so he was the top general for the state of Utah. He was in charge of the whole state national guard. As high as you can get. As high as you can get. Uh, like he was a two-star general and, any general is a big deal, but the more stars you have, the bigger deal. Right. Um, so he's a two star and he, um, so he's got tons of connections with the Pentagon, uh, you know, the DC, the DOD uh, folks. Um, and then he ran for legislature after he, after he retired. Um, and so I, I don't really have any experience with him, uh, but there are two guys that, um, I don't know. They'll have all the technical questions, which is good. Like fully vet this bill. Uh, we welcome that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they don't get on board, we need like a grassroots um, support and like movement to say, Hey, you took an oath to defend the constitution as well. Like not only in the military, but here at your job as a legislator, and like you can help fulfill that too, and here's why. Um, and I know, I know, Representative, I think it was Peterson said that he had reservations about. Kind of felt like we were holding the guard hostage uh, with this bill. Um, and I think, like, I see his point, but I think it's the other way around. That as with most things that the federal government has um, sunk its teeth into, mm-hmm. uh, the National Guard is no different. And like, this is an opportunity to take a stand against, you know, federal overreach. Um, if you, if you want Congress to do their job, this bill would help that. Um, if you think the president, the executive branch is too powerful, this bill would help that. Um, if you support veterans, um, make less of them. Uh, stop fighting, stop fighting these wars that have, like, I don't know how you can look at these and think that they're helping, helping people. Right. I, maybe I'll close on this. I, I obviously really struggle with this. Like I want to be helpful to my community. I feel like I, I mean, I wouldn't have got my degree. I guess I would have been in a lot more school debt, but like, I wouldn't have got my degree without the national guard. I wouldn't, um, you know, and like, I feel like I will be spending the rest of my life trying to pay back the debt that I've taken on from being in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and not to mention the guilt from Yemen. I mean, that's I think about that a lot. And I, um, I thought about quitting. Um, I could file as a conscious objector, um, and I. So I feel like a hypocrite because I haven't done that yet. Um, and I don't know if I will because I still want to do good. And I still feel like there's opportunities for good to be done in the military and in the National Guard. Um, and so I, I'm not going to re-enlist, but I, like, that's, you know, I feel guilty for th- those things, but I also feel guilty for staying in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope that this can help, maybe not just me, but help other people feel feel better about what we do. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think, uh, I think, no matter what you do, just the simple fact that you now, you know, there's that consciousness that you've you've attained where it's like you're aware of a lot of the issues, and they don't sit well with you. And I think that speaks very highly to the you know to your character as a as a person and then also you know it shows that you're reflecting on the seriousness and and the um you know how it it reflects your awareness of the oath you took and what you enlisted to do and what you were i you know went in to accomplish and you're seeing that there's there's a lot of things where it's falling short um, it's, you know, a question of how do you, you know, what's the right approach, what's the right tactic. But I think as long as, you know, that's your goal, whether you stay in it, whether you leave, however you approach it, you know, getting behind this bill, simply talking to people, who knows. But I think by the mere fact that your end side is paying back those debts by trying to fix the things that you've seen, you know, need fixing, I think that's really the, the most important part out of everything, regardless of, is it right to stay in? Is it right to leave? Like, I don't know that there is a real right answer to that. I think it's more just, you know, what are you doing and what's, what's your end goal? Because now, now when you approach these things, it's no longer just like, you know, Hey, America all the way. And, you know, no, everything we do is right. And, you know, no questions asked. Like it's now, there's a very cautious and aware approach. And that's that's clearly you living up to that, um, you know, to that oath and living up to really what your role is as a, you know, member of the armed forces defending the country. Sometimes that means you're defending it from its, you know, from the government itself. You know, I don't, and, and what that really, imp- the implications of that are, I don't know, how deep we get into that but yeah i just it's it's a heavy toll it's a heavy weight that i i can't even imagine what it must be like to having these questions hang over you and and just the things you've experienced but yeah um, and yeah i like i said i'm i'm just a mechanic like i can't imagine like realizing this if i was actually like killing people mm-hmm yeah, you actually saw combat. Like, I feel bad for those guys, you know. And I, I know I, you talk to vets, and they're like, you get over there, and it's not, you know, rah rah America. It's like we're protecting our buddies. Yeah, you're trying to stay alive, so we, so we can go home. Um, 
And so, like, let's just not send them there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I guess just final shout out. Um, I don't have any like social media or anything. I'm not good with that kind of stuff. Uh, but if anyone listening to this is interested in defending the guard, uh, contact David. Um, he's been leading this movement so great here in Utah. Um, if you know veterans, you know veteran. The veteran voices are what you know we need to to take to Capitol Hill. Uh, they'll make the difference. Um, and so I know there's a Facebook page. I you can do those plugs, David. But I uh, we just need more more people. Um, and so I've tried to reach out to the few National Guard members I know. Um, I just have a small little group, uh, but there's members throughout the whole state and uh, whether they're National Guard or veterans uh, from active duty or anything like that, uh, we need all the support and and get behind the bill. Yep. No, 100 percent. And uh, yeah, like like Pete said, go ahead and you can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, even Twitter, David Ari Glacius. Uh, more importantly, go follow the Defend the Guard Utah Facebook page. It's literally what it's called, Defend the Guard Utah. I don't think I could have said any better. Like, you know, Pete pointed out, we need voices of people who are involved in this. Um, those are the people that are going to make the change. And those are the ones that the legislator, the legislature is really going to be compelled to listen to. Because if, you know, say the former General Burton has to sit down and confront one of his former soldiers versus confronting me, a civilian. You know, I think he's going to probably not, I don't know, I I don't want to speak to him, but like my guess is he would probably give a lot more credence uh, credence to uh, his soldier, you know, the one that he promised he was going to take care of and oversee and, and all that. So please feel free to reach out. Pete, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate you, first of all, reaching out to me and getting behind this and just constantly helping out in every way you've you've done so far. And also, thanks for coming on and just sharing your story and your thoughts, man. Like, this has been awesome. I've loved just letting people get to hear your your side of things and just from somebody inside the guard so that they see this isn't, it's not like a few you know, fringe people or just outside voices there, there are, I, I have seen that there's a significant uh, demand for this. And it's not just activists, it's armed forces members. And so, yeah, um, I just, this was great. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks, David. It's yep. been great. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. Go ahead and share it with uh, anyone that you think will get something out of it and you know feel free to contact your representatives and tell them that you care about this and you want them to come talk to us and consider this bill so until next time have a great evening guys